You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, for, welcome. Thank you for coming. And a few of you are coming back. I appreciate that. One thing important, I forgot last time we did J.D. Salinger. And uh, I forgot to tell you that when he went on a short D-Day, he had five chapters. I don't think I said this. Five chapters, uh, the first five chapters of The Catcher in the Rye in his pocket to give him something to live for. Huh, Seeing that, great. just to get him through all those 276 days of combat and everything. Well, anyway, what we'd like to do today is I'd like to... Uh, cover, uh, I think, one of the greatest short story writers that ever lived, Flannery O'Connor, who died, uh, sadly, at 39 of lupus, and there's no telling how many, morning, how many great uh, stories were left teeming in her brain, so it was a, a great loss for her, for us, and uh, and I can make her pretty simple. If you, if you understand three words, I think you can read anything that Flannery O'Connor ever wrote, and that's mystery, Manners and the Grotesque. I'm going to make this really easy. Mystery, Manners, and the Grotesque. And the mystery is the theme of her story. Our stories. And that's the mystery of God's grace. Somebody receives salvation in every one of her stories. And the, the way you look for it is not the one you think deserves it, but the one that's linked with peacocks or the tree line, the skyline. Peacock's kind of a traditional Christian symbol. And uh, she had some, some pet peacocks that she went around, kept around in her, in her house there, in her farm. And then the uh, manners is her setting. And that's a synecdoche. I always thought that my ninth graders got you know, give them a 75 cent word. Synecdoche, synecdoche is a part standing for the whole, like, you know, lend me a hand or give me, you know, lend me your ears or give me a hand or something like that. And uh, so, uh, Manners is a synecdoche for the South. I mean, that's her setting. But don't call her a Southern writer because, you know, if you're any good, you're writing about humanity. You're writing about the human heart. And you're not doing uh, just writers in Georgia or whatever. And then the last one is the grotesque. And that's her style. And, uh, and that's what makes her unique. I've read a lot of religious writers and I've read a lot of grotesque writers. She's the only grotesque religious writer <laughs> I've ever come across. She tells you a really good story, and uh, uh, and she she gets her point across. Now, the reason she uses the grotesque, I don't know if I'm have time to do this whole thing, but look at uh, on the if got one of those quotation sheets. I tell my students this is done with a typewriter. It's going to be I'm having to explain to them what a typewriter is now. That's why there why there are all these mistakes, Mr. Palmer. Uh, the novel, she says, the novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him, and his problem will his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural, and he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to this hostile audience. And I capitalize this to the heart. Here's why she uses the grotesque. Come on in, to the heart of hearing you shout. 
And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. And so what she's saying is you, you have seen so many grotesque things with, you know, all the shootings and hijackings and all this kind of stuff that I've got to be downright shocking to get your attention so that you will read my story so that I can get my religious message to you. And she was a, very, she was a devout Catholic. She went to church. Come on in. She went to, she went to church every, every day. And if you go through Milledgeville, Georgia, where she grew up, um, go by, you can see her house. And her, we got to go into her Catholic, into her church. And uh, we even got to see her, uh, her pet peacocks that were still running around. She was dead, but um, they were molting. And I got a Flannery O'Connor peacock feather, which was uh, a great treasure. And it somehow got stolen or lost. And it's one of the great tragedies of my life. But <laughs> I survived. All right. Well, anyway, let's get into this, and you can see this book's done a lot of good teaching. She's she's getting tired. Let's see if we can get one more story out of it. This is called A Good Man's Hard to Find, which is her uh, most famous story, and I'm going to have to kind of go on through quickly the first part to get to the second half, which is the vital part of the story. And it starts out, this, this is a famous story. You've got a, the grandmother who's going to be our focus, and then she's with her family, and her, she's got a son named Bailey. And then there, and his uh, and his wife, and you've got their two children, uh, John Wesley, and see religions introduced right there, the founder of the Methodist Church, and June Stars, the daughter, and they're just brats. I mean, they're just they're like these kids you, uh, these five year olds you babysat for, and you know whatever you paid were paid, it wasn't enough. It was just uh, they've never had any discipline in their lives, no structure. And so it starts off, they're reading the newspaper, and the grandmother reads that the misfit has escaped from prison, and she's talking about, you know, how dangerous that is, and, uh, and they're about to go on a trip to Florida to where the uh, misfit has escaped. And so they get in the car, and they go off, and she has smuggled the cat in. It's named Pity Singh. And I imagine that came to Southern colloquialism for pretty thing, but it introduces the idea of pity into the story, which will be important later on. And she sneaks them in a black valise now. Uh, look for the color symbolism. There, really, the ending's no surprise because she prepares you with a lot of good foreshadowing, including with the, uh, with the colors. And so she smuggles the cat in in, a, in in this box and because she knows her son, Bailey, would not want a cat to be you know, to be going with them on the trip. So she's smuggling the cat in there. And uh, Flannery always got some really interesting characters. Uh, the, insane, the State Insane Asylum is in Milledgeville. And more than one person suggested she went there to, <laughs> to try to find characters for her, her stories there. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes a good story. And so they're driving along, and... Uh, and she's got some purple violets in there in her dress. And of course, purple we know from here is a, a religious color. <clears throat> and, uh, and then they go by, uh, they see some, uh, a dirt road with some red clay banks slightly streaked with purple. So you've got more purple. And then red is a, a, a dual archetype for love, as in <clears throat> red roses, but also violence and death. And so they go along and they pass a, a cotton field with five or six graves fenced in the middle of it, which is never good <laughs> foreshadowing, right, when you've got five or six people in the family, right? And then they decide they get hungry. They, they stop, you know, it's a southern story, so they stop for some barbecue at the tower. 
And Flannery and I think Charles Dickens were the best at coming up with names of anybody I've ever come across. Uh, you know, if you were about to do Great Expectations and, uh, you know, Pumblechook, and I mean, you've got names like that which are just fa fabulous. Anyway, the guy who runs this, uh, the barbecue joint is named Red Sammy Butts, which is just <laughs> perfect for a guy running uh, <coughs> a, a barbecue joint. And just a little sampling of how out of control these little kids are, Red Sammy's wife comes up and says, ain't she cute? Would you like to come be my little girl? And I mean, you've all had that happen to you. And you say, yes, ma'am, that would be so wonderful, you know. <laughs> not June Star. No, I certainly would not. I wouldn't live in a broken down place like this for a million bucks. Well, <laughs> And, and Mrs. Red Sammy says, says, ain't she cute? I mean, which is about as, about as graceful as she knows her manners. And the, and the parents say nothing. These kids are bad manners through the whole story. The grandmother's the only one because she's really concerned about manners. And aren't you ashamed? And so they go uh, get back in the car and they drive along. They go past a, a little town named Tombsboro, which, again, <laughs> not good foreshadowing, right? And... Uh, and so then uh, at outside Tombsboro, the grandmother remembered a house from her childhood that she, that she wanted to go see again. She just gets kind of obsessed there. And she said it had six white columns, more foreshadowing. White's a spiritual color, as in ghost and things, right? And she just decides she really wants to go see this house again. And uh, so now she's got to get crafty, though. She's, you know, she makes up this story about there being a secret panel with some silver uh, stored in it. So, so now the kids are involved, right? Because they're greedy little ducks, right? And so they do all the stuff that your children did on road trips, you know? They start screaming, we don't ever have any fun, and, you know, we don't ever get to what we want to do. And then uh, John Wesley starts kicking, this doesn't give your kids any ideas, he starts kicking his dad's seat behind him right about kidney level. And uh, I remember one road trip when my boy, Alan and Ryan, my boys were little. Uh, they'd just been squawking. You know what they did? They, they just pick at each other. Just poke. Just to get a, get a reaction. Finally, I remember stopping the car, getting a black magic marker, and just making a no man's land right down the middle of the, of the sea. And I said, don't you dare cross that line. I mean, you, you've heard some serious complaining before you deface your car like that, right? Permanently. It's like that commercial that guy throws his money in the bay or something. I wish I hadn't done that. You know? okay. Anyway, so they go, so they finally, the, Bailey, the son says, okay, we'll go there. This is the only time we're ever going to do this. So they turn down a dirt road with pink dust. All right, so we know dust, archetype for death, ashes to ashes, pink some more red coming at us. And uh, anyway, the grandmother says, it's not much further. And a horrible thought came to her. The thought was so embarrassing that she turned red in her face and her eyes dilated and her feet jumped up, upsetting her valise in the corner. The instant the valise moved, the newspaper top she had over the basket under it rose with a snarl. Hope you're not getting in trouble for cutting class and jumping to mine, but I appreciate it. In pity seeing the cat sprang onto Bailey's shoulder, one of my former students, one of my superstars. The children were thrown to the floor, and their mother clutching the baby was thrown out the door onto the ground. The old lady was thrown into the front seat. The car turned over once and landed right side up in a gulch. 
and on the side of the road. Bailey remained in the driver's seat with the cap clinging to his neck. We've had an accident, the, the children cried. The grandmother was curled up under the dashboard, hoping she was injured so that Bailey's wrath would not come down at her all at once. The horrible thought she had before the accident was that the house she had remembered so vividly was not in Georgia, but in ten Tennessee, which is, <laughs> she's in the wrong darn state. So anyway, Bailey throws the cat off his, uh, and against a tree. That always upsets my students. They're worried about the cat. Anyway, so the kids are just in a frenzy of delight, <clears throat> but nobody's killed, they say. So anyway, the road, they're down about 10 feet below the, uh, top of the road. In a few minutes, they see a car coming along, slowly coming just one around one turn after another. And it's a big black battered hearse. And so as I told the kids, you know, once they figure out what a hearse is, you know, we see a, a black, black battered hearse coming for you. Uh, the best thing is just run the other way, right? Fast as you can. And so anyway, they stop. the car stops above them. And three guys get out. One's a fat boy in black trousers and a red sweatshirt. And then the driver of the car got out. He was an older man. His hair is just turning gray. He had a long creased face, doesn't have a shirt on, and his blue jeans were too tight for him. He was holding a black hat. And the two boys also had guns. The grandmother had the peculiar feeling that the bespeckled man was someone she knew. His face was as familiar to her as she had known him all her life. He had on white shoes and his ankles were red and thin. And this is the misfit, and he's ironically he's got the best manners of anybody in the story. Your your mass murderer is the has the best manners. I see you all had a little spill. We turned over twice," said the grandmother. Once it, he corrected. We've seen it happen. <clears throat> Try their car and see will it run, Hiram, who's one of his guys. Okay, and then he says, "Children make me nervous," and we're going to talk more about that. Of course, these kids make anybody nervous, right? <clears throat> and anyway, then <clears throat> the grandmother shrieked. You're the misfit, she screamed. I recognize you at once. Well, asked the kids, is that a good move or a bad move? They said, that's a bad move. Now he's got to kill her, right? Okay. And so, yes, he said, smiling, but it would have been better for all of you, lady, if you hadn't have recognized me. Bailey turned his head sharply. <clears throat> and said something to his mother that shocked even the children. Now, that's serious wordy dirts. Now, if it shocks those kids, okay, so he curses his own mother, okay? The old lady began to cry, and the misfit read, and it upsets the misfit. We're going to find out why, too. And he tries to console her. He says, lady, don't you get upset. Sometimes a man says things he don't mean. I don't reckon he meant to talk to you that way. And then grandmother says, you wouldn't shoot a lady, would you? The man, point, the misfit, pointed the toe of his shoe into the ground and made a little hole and then covered it up again. Well, you can figure that symbolism out, right? Digging a grave, right? I would hate have to, which is like the politicians not answer, answer, right? You've, we've heard all that stuff. You try to get a yes or no and you can't get it, right? I just know you're a good man. You don't have a bit of common blood. You must come from nice people. Now, the grandmother is preoccupied with his superficial stuff of manners. And we love manners. But she spends too much time on some of the stuff about what are good people and bad people and manners and not. And she has lost focus on what really matters in life. Okay? And so, yes, ma'am. And she said, I, be, I know you must come from nice people. Yes, ma'am. Finest people in the world. 
God never made a finer woman than my mother, and my daddy's heart was pure gold. And so he's, and he says, uh, uh, let's see here. Um, yeah, make sure it didn't turn too many pages. Okay, watch them children, Bobby Lee. And of course, that's the other guy. And there, for a hundred years, there are a lot of Bobby Lees running around the South, right? For Robert E. Lee, right? You know they make me nervous. And so he said, don't see no sun, but don't see no cloud either. So now, he is not going to be the one receiving grace. He is blind to the skyline. We said, for those of you who come in later, when you're looking for the one that receives grace, the shocking and inexplicable presence of grace, which is kind of the theme of the course, uh, you look for peacocks and tree lines, the skyline. Okay? Anyway, so... Uh, um, and so he goes, uh, and he talks to... Uh, says, first you and Bobby Lee get him and that little boy and step over yonder with you. Would you mind, would you mind stepping back in them woods there with them? So he's going to send Bailey and, the, and his son off in the woods to get shot. Hiram pulled Bailey up by the arm as if he assisted an old man and then got John Wesley by the hand. I'll be back in a minute, Mama. Wait on me. Bailey boy called the grandmother in a tragic voice, but she found she was looking at the misfit. I just know you're a good man. You're not a bit common. Gnome, I ain't a good man. But I ain't the worst in the world neither. My daddy said I was a different breed of dog from my brothers and sisters. I'm sorry I don't have on a shirt before you ladies. I mean, it's okay to kill, you know, just, you know, men, women and children, right? Okay. But, but don't go bare chested around them, right? I mean, it's like, uh, you know, Faulkner once said, the South, you can't understand it. You'd have to be born there. I mean, try to explain football or something to some other people. Or How about the little old lady? Her house was going to get bulldozed. The day before his bulldozed, she went in and cleaned the house. <laughs> See, I get it. It makes sense to me, but I grew up here, okay? Somebody in New England probably think it's crazy. Anyway, we buried our clothes that we had and we escaped. We borrowed these from some folks we met, stole, after we killed them. Anyway, she says, Bailey has an extra shirt. I'll go look and see directly. Isn't that great colloquialism? I'll do it directly. I've heard that out in the country. Daddy was a card himself. You couldn't put anything over on him. He never got in trouble with the authorities, though. Just had a knack of handling them. Now, my interpretation of this story is a pretty deeply indebted to Andrew Lytle. If you've heard him, famous writer, Southern Renaissance, good friend of Robert Penn Warren and Alan Tate and that group. He was one of the fugitives. I was in, lucky enough as his, his last uh, contemporary fiction class up at Sewanee. And he, he, I remember him teaching this. I felt like he was just right on target. There was a pistol shot from the woods followed closely by another. The old lady's head jerked around. Then we could hear the wind move through the treetops. So you see, the grandmother's getting linked with the skyline. Paley boy. I was a gospel. She, she mourns the son who cursed her. I was, now, this is like a mystery story. It's where I had way to teach with the kids. See if we can figure this mystery out, okay? About what messed him up. I was a gospel singer for a while. I've been most everything. Been twice married. Been an under she had a great ear for language, didn't she? Been an undertaker, I believe that. Been in a tornado. Seen a man burnt alive once it. I even seen a woman flogged. I never was a bad boy that I remember. 
But somewheres along the line, I'd done something wrong and got sent to the penitentiary. I was buried alive. There was a great quotation by uh, Alexander, uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky in the Brothers Karamazov. He said, some good sacred memory preserved from childhood is perhaps the best education. If you have many such memories, you're safe to the end of your days. And that's, that's right after Roger says the most important time in your life is the childhood. You cannot love and hug those kids enough. But the reverse is opposite too. If you get messed up in childhood, it's hard to fix that. Pat Conroy said there's, there's no fixing a damaged childhood. Best you can hope for is make that sucker float. And so let's see what missed, missed this guy. Only, only Pat could say it like that, right? So he said, so I was, I'd done something wrong was sent to the penitentiary. I was buried alive. Turn to the right, it was a wall. Turn to the left, it was a wall. Look up, it was a ceiling. So no skyline, right? Look down, it's a floor. I forget what I'd done, lady. I sat there and sat there trying to remember what it was I'd done. And I ain't recalled it to this day. There was a head doctor at the penitentiary said what I'd done was kill my daddy. But I know that for a lie. My daddy died, here's the key clue, in 19-alt-19. Now, my kids can't ever get this. Can anybody put that in numbers? 19-alt-19. What is that, my star? What? Yeah, it's, it's 19-0-19, right? And this is why I love class discussion, okay? I had some math major in my class, and I'm just, I think I'm being clever with showing that there, there's, that's no such year, right? And so... Obviously, his father did not die of the flu, that epidemic flu, the Spanish flu, that what killed more people than World War I. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But then one of my little math mates, Mr. Palmer, that spells what? SOS. If you do that one for A and I. I love that stuff. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the greatest honor. You get in Mr. Palmer's book. You know, I put your name in it. You're, you're famous then, right? So it's just like a cry for help. So we know his father did not die of the flu. Okay, so something else killed him, right? Okay, so uh, any idea what what could have happened then? What the penitentiary doctor say? I'm, I I I seen a man burnt alive once. He killed his father. Why? I even seen what? Woman. I I think the father was beaten up boy's mother and he just couldn't take him remember he said like his daddy always could get way of getting out of trouble and stuff okay and so he just and for his mama he threw his life away for his mama to protect her but it's so horrific he had to block it out right so but we get these little clues why do children make him nervous why do children make him nervous Yeah, and it reminds him of his childhood. He remembers what it was like, right? He knows what kids can do. Anyway, so uh, Bobby Lee and Hiram came in dragging a yellow shirt with parrots on it. And throw me that shirt, Bobby Lee. And says, no, lady, I found out that the crime don't matter. You, you, can, do an, you, you can do another. Kill a man. See, it keeps popping up. Or take a tire off his car because sooner or later... You're going to forget what it was you'd done and just be punished for it. Said, lady, and he turns to the mother, would you, my, you and that little girl, like to step off yonder with Bobby Lee and Hiram and join your husband? I mean, his manners are so great. And he sent them off to, to their desk. Help that lady up, Hiram. Bobby Lee, you hold on that little girl's hand. 
I don't want to hold hands with him, June Star said. He reminds me of a pig. Oh, that's great. Insult the guy that's got the gun. Okay. Anyways, they go off. Alone with the misfit, the grandmother found that she had lost her voice. Now we get to what Flannery called the heart of the story. I thought I'd lost you. I said, I'll get better. I'll, I swear, I'm, it's about to get better. Okay. I always hate it when they leave. I said, man, I'm dying. All right, so anyway, and so she's a left with, alone with the misfit. And this is, Flannery always said, find the heart of the story. Okay. And she's there alone with, okay. She wanted to tell him that he must pray. Finally, she found herself saying, Jesus, Jesus will help. She meaning Jesus will help you. Yes, the misfit said. Jesus thrown, thrown everything, not thrown, but thrown, right? Thrown everything off balance. It was the same case with him as me as anybody, okay? I call myself the misfit because I can't make out what all I've done wrong fit what all I've gone through in punishment. There was a piercing scream from the woods followed by a pistol report. Does it seem right to you, lady, that one is punished a heap? And another ain't punished at all. Well, who's the one that was punished a heap? Jesus and, and his mama. And another ain't punished at all. His dad kept getting out of trouble, right? He, he suppresses, but it keeps burrowing back up into his consciousness. And says, says uh, Jesus, the lady cried, You've got good blood. I know you wouldn't shoot a lady. I know you come from nice people. And she's still got some of that, you know, some of that pretentiousness about the manners. There were two, uh, two, there were two more pistol reports. He says, lady, there never was a lady body that give the undertaker a tip. There were two more pistol reports. And the grandmother raised her head like a parched old turkey hen crying for water and called Bailey boy, Bailey boy. As if her heart would break. She's just heartbroken to lose the son who's just been abusive to her. And the misfit says, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. And he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he had done what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then there's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. By killing somebody or burning down his house. See, again, it's burrowing back up. Or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. I wasn't there, so I can't say he did. He's talking about Jesus. I wish I'd been there. Hitting the ground with his fist. He wished he'd been there with Jesus. He said, if, I, if I'd seen it, then I would have known it's the truth. And, and I would have followed him. It ain't right I wasn't there. Because if I'd been there, I'd have known if I'd have been there, I'd have known and I wouldn't be like I am now. His voice seemed to crack and the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She saw the, old, the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry. And she murmured, Why, you're one of my babies. She has an epiphany. Okay? Facing death, her heart, and her heart opens... And, and it just opens up and she just says, my God, what did they do to you to turn you into this? And she reaches out with love and forgiveness like Jesus 
forgiving us. She reaches out with forgiveness to this man that is killing her family. You're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Bam, bam, bam. That's one of the most famous endings in literature. First of all, why is it three times? That's a loaded number, isn't it? Loaded. It's, it's an important number in the Bible there. Now, why does he shoot her? Why does he shoot the ground? He just reacts, okay? And instantly shoots her. You know, you know, you can you can beat him up, hit him, punish him. That's okay. Been there, done that. You can lock him in solitary confinement. Throw away the key. I can handle that. What's he afraid of? What can he not handle? What does she give? Love. Why? Why is he the misfit, the killer, is scared of the little old lady? He is scared of love. And why is that? Pardon me? Unmerited and undeserved. <laughs> well, yeah, I, say, I, I don't deserve it. Love, Lo hurt. love hurts. It's like that song, right? Okay. Love does hurt. When did love hurt him? As a child, seeing his mother hurt and, 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 and killing his father. A father that he loved despite everything. She scares him. And he took off his glasses and wiped them. Now, as if a snake had bitten him. Well, see, that's ironic, right? Because, you know, she, here's, the, here's that shocking and inexplicable presence of grace. But she's the instrument of God's grace and she's compared to a snake. So that's very ironic there. And, uh, and anyway, the grandmother half lay and half sat in a puddle of blood with her legs crossed under her like a child's and her face smiling up at the cloudless sky. So she dies looking at the tree line there. Without his glasses, the misfit's eyes were red-rimmed and defenseless looking. Why, why are his eyes red? Crying. He's just a scared little boy, isn't he? This killer's just a scared little boy who, who threw his life away to save his mama. They picked the, he picked up the cat that was rubbing itself against his leg. This one, the weird part of the story. I, I feel like I understand a lot of it. <laughs> but my students are all relieved to find the cats alive. I mean, we've, we've, we've wiped out this family. And, they, and then they say, oh, thank God the cat's okay. I, I love animals, okay? But I mean, my goodness. Oh, gracious. Uh, anyway, she was a talker, wasn't she? Bobby Lee said. And here's that famous last line. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. And so what Flannery talks about in an essay, one time she's interviewed about this, and she talks about it, and she says, uh, she says there's, a, there's a point in the story where this gesture occurs that we're looking for. <clears throat> the grandmother's head clears for an instant. She realizes, even in her limited way, that she is responsible for the man before her, and joined to him by ties of kinship, which have their roots deep in the mystery which she has been merely prattling about so far. 
And at this point, she does the right thing. She makes the right gesture. I don't want to acquaint the misfit with the devil. I prefer to think that, however unlikely this may seem, the old lady's gesture, like the mustard seed, will grow to be a great crow-filled tree in the misfit's heart and will be enough of a pain to him there to turn him into the prophet he was meant to become. But that's another story. Now, the misfit is a prophet. Now, that's, that's, that's a twist, but that's, that's Flannery. All my other writers, that I go by their last name, Faulkner, Dickinson, Shakespeare. Flannery's just Flannery, though, right? But anyway, she was wanting to do another story where he becomes a prophet. And I, t- I tell my students, well, you know, she died too soon. Maybe you can do it. So, you know, um, I-, I had one of my students write a sequel to one of the stories. Anyways, now the lines of motion that interest the writer are usually invisible. They're lines of spiritual motion. And in this story, you should be on the lookout for such things as the action of grace in the grandmother's soul and not on the dead bodies. Now, here's, here, this is brilliant criticism right here. With the, this goes in with the, <clears throat> the shocking and inexplicable presence of grace in that last line I was just reading. With the serious writer, violence is never an end in itself. It is the extreme situation that best reveals what we are essentially. The man in the violent situation reveals those qualities least dispensable in his personality. Those qualities which are all he will have to take into eternity. And so what she's saying through that story and the essay is that when you're faced in the prospect of death or real danger, then your head clears and you realize who you really are, what your essence is, what what really matters to your faith, your family, your country, what is it? And, your, and all this other riffraff about manners and all this stuff, it just clears instantly away. And you realize what's really in your heart of hearts because that's all you'll be able to take to heaven with you. Okay? So, so we've got that pattern of the mothers and sons. What mothers and sons do we have in here? Let's see, you've got the misfit and his mom and Bailey and, and the grandmother. And, uh, and those bratty little kids and their mom who just didn't do much of the story, okay? And so, uh, Flannery once said that grace has to be really shocking to keep up with the kind of evil she made concrete. So her, her endings are, are quite shocking, but, you know, she has this strong religious message, and I told you she went to church every single day. And it's just, uh, it's odd. Oh, and, uh, the, uh, you know, this, well, I lost my thought there. That happens, doesn't it? So anyway, it's uh oh oddly it's a it's this sh- story with the shocking it's a story of love, isn't it? It's like uh, Esme last week, the story of love. The the mo- the grandmother loves the misfit, and the misfit loved his mama. Okay, it's it's a great it's one of our finest finest stories there. Uh, Andrew Lytle uh, taught at uh, I think University of Iowa. The creative there's a famous creative writing program out there. And he was getting in the first batch of short stories, and they were not very good. And they're not very good. And the guy was, whoa. <laughs> and look at the name. Quiet woman with the big black glasses in the back there, Mary Flannery O'Connor. He said, You've got it. So it's pretty cool. Well, listen, thank you for coming. I know. And I, I love teaching. Next week's A Good Country People, which is another another <laughs> unusual story, but it's another one of her great ones. And so uh, thank you a lot. Okay. Y'all have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.